From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Jeff Burson, and I guess Michael McCall is probably doubling up on our social media efforts, or not. Someone is. <laughs> Someone is. Probably Jeff Burson. Magnificent. Or Ace McKay. Ace McKay. There, I've covered the entire staff that's, on, that's, that's in the building today. So somebody, one of those people is covering our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Tuesday, the newest member of the Fathers of Mercy, <laughs> Father Grizzly Adams. <laughs> Jack, Jack, is there something in my radio contract that says that I, I need to shave? <laughs> there is not. There okay. is not. <laughs> All right. Well, this is this is called just getting back from Idaho from that men's retreat in Coeur d'Alene. And uh, we had a fantastic weekend there, 175 guys, and uh, just a, a fantastic retreat there with, with uh, Dr. Ray Gurindy. Just He gave some fantastic talks. And, and it kind of like a comedy show, as you know, Dr. Ray and his, his sense of humor. Yeah. And I served there. As the, as the spiritual chaplain end of things, and uh, so it was just a great weekend. Got in late last night at the Nashville airport, so I guess you could just say I'm kind of being lazy today. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anybody, if you're not watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, if you want to see Father Wade's rugged look, today would be the day to tune into social media. So speaking of rugged looks, this gentleman did not have a rugged look. This, uh, this, this gentleman is said to have been, I've heard more than one person say, this is the most delightful human being to ever uh, sit in the chair of Peter. That's right. That's why he was known as the good Pope, quote, end quote, huh? Pope John the Twenty Third, now saint. And I want to talk a little bit about his life today. A week ago today, uh, on the 11th, was his feast day. And why is October 11th his feast day, a week ago today? Because that's the day that he convened the Second Vatican Council. So I want to talk a little bit about him and, and the 16 documents that the Council put out, Jack. Uh, just a phenomenal Pope, again, known as the Good Pope. He convoked the Second Vatican Council in 1962, looking to bring the Church into the 20th century and taking the whole world by surprise. His goal was to focus less on severity and judgment and more on mercy and teaching. 
and his opening statement of the council makes this very clear. He says, quote, the church has never failed to oppose these errors, and he had just given the errors of the world, uh, modernity and whatnot, and has even condemned them very often, indeed with the greatest of severity. But at the present time, the spouse of Christ is pleased to apply the medicine of mercy rather than take up the weapons of severity. She judges it prudent to meet the needs of today by demonstrating more amply the power of her teaching rather than by condemning. And again, that's from uh, the opening address of St. John the Twenty-Third at the opening session of the Second Vatican Council on October 11th, 1962, which used to be the universal feast day of the divine maternity of the Blessed Virgin as the Mother of God, now celebrated on January 1st of every year to kick off the wonderful um, uh, secular year, and it's also the eighth day octave day, January 1st, of Christmas, and so it's more appropriately placed there. He was a holy and devout man of humble origin, John the Twenty-Third was. Uh, Pope John Paul II once stated the most precious gift that Pope John the Twenty-Third left to the people of God was himself, his witness to holiness, huh? How beautiful is that? John the Twenty-Third was able to accomplish much during his short term as Pope from 1958 to 1963. Yet he did not live to see the Second Vatican Council to its completion. He died of stomach cancer on June 3, 1963, four and a half years after his election to the papacy, and two months after the completion of his final and famed encyclical, Pacem in Teres, uh, Peace on Earth, about the importance of such things as nuclear disarmament, proper food distribution, especially to third world countries and the like. In that encyclical, Pachamenteris, he states in paragraph 10, when we consider man's personal dignity from the standpoint of divine revelation, inevitably our estimate of it is incomparably increased. Humanity has been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ipso facto, we could say, huh? Just a fact of, of, of truth and a fact of faith. Another uh, short life of John the Twenty-Third. Uh, Jack says this: John the Twenty-Third was born Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, the fourth of thirteen children, to poor Italian sharecroppers. After seminary, he studied in Rome on a scholarship. He served as a secretary to the bishop in Bergamo, Italy, and as a diplomat for the Holy See. Before he was elected pope, he had already served as a military chaplain and as a Vatican diplomat in Bulgaria, Turkey, and France. He had also ministered to war-wounded soldiers and helped Jews fleeing the Nazis obtain transit visas for secure travel. At the age of 76, he was elected in 1958 as a supposed interim pope, huh? Uh, nobody thought he would be a pope for very long. Four years later, on October 11th, 1962, he called the bishops of the world together an ecumenical council to address the church's mission to the modern world in what would become known as the Second Vatican Council. That evening, he told the gathered faithful, quote, when you head home, find your children, hug your children and kiss your children and tell them this is the hug and kiss of the pope. Give anyone who suffers a word of comfort. Tell them the Pope is with us, especially in our times of sadness and bitterness. Again, in the midst of the Cold War, Cold War uh, the building up of nuclear weapons, uh, this, this was the, the scenario, the world stage, if you will, at the time in which the Second Vatican Council was convened. He said, I want to live by the mercy of Jesus, 
to whom I owe everything and from whom I expect everything. He knew precisely who his Savior was and is. Pope St. John the Twenty-Third died in 1963, as I said earlier, two years before the official closing of the Second Vatican Council took place in 1965. And under his guidance, Jack, the, the Second Vatican Council uh, put out 16 documents, and I want to just run through them in their English titles to show the, the variety of different areas that the Second Vatican Council addressed. Huh? First of all, there was the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which was the very first of the 16 documents promulgated uh, on December 4th, 1963. Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium is the Vatican, is the Latin title, excuse me, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. Then we have Intermerifica, the Decree on the Means of Social Communication, a very prophetic document that actually states that if, if not watched carefully, we can become enslaved by modern technology. It states that modern technology is a beautiful, beautiful thing, especially for communication purposes among the peoples of the world scattered across the globe. But if we are not careful, it can enslave us. And how often do we see that more and more today with the modern means of social communication? Now, we're Catholic. We believe these are beautiful inventions, but they need to be tempered, huh? They need to be... Um, kept check on. So again, the decree on, on the means of social communications, intermerifica. Lumen Gentium is the dogmatic constitution on the church, the great ecclesiological document telling us about the makeup, uh, means, and purpose of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and what it means precisely to be the church, capital C, uh, the church subsists precisely in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Then there's the decree on, uh, on the Catholic churches of the Eastern Rite, the 23 rites of the Eastern Church. There's the decree on ecumenism, of dialoguing with other uh, faiths, both non-Catholic Christian faiths and non-Christian faiths. And we see this, for example, uh, during the universal prayer, the prayers of the faithful, uh, during the Passion uh, Rite of Good Friday. Uh, then there's the decree concerning the pastoral office of bishops in the church, a document addressed especially to them and their leadership. Perfecte Caritatis, number seven, the decree on renewal of religious life. Then there's the decree on priestly training. There's the declaration on Christian education. There's the declaration on the relation of the church to non-Christian religions. There's the dogmatic constitution, constitution on divine revelation, on sacred scripture, the decree on the apostolate of the laity, the declaration on religious freedom and what that means, the decree on the missionary activity of the church throughout the world, the decree on the ministry and life of priests, and also the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, the first of its kind, a pastoral constitution known as Gaudium et Spes in the Latin title, Latin for joys and hopes, one of my favorite amongst the 16 documents. 833-288-EWTN, it's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Let me give you a personal invitation to visit EWTN's site dedicated to Mother Angelica. 
where you can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos, milestones, heartfelt stories, and her wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. Simply visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today. To the phones we go. First up today is Simon in Ankeny, Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Simon, you're on with um, Father Wade Menezes. Oh, okay. Well, uh, yes, uh, I have a question. Great. Um, Thanks for calling today, Simon. Yes, thank you. Um, So uh, my question is, uh, what would happen if somebody throws uh, the uh, Holy Eucharist uh, or the uh, the 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 chalice, um, the Holy Eucharist, the the wine, what is what is Jesus, like the consecrated wine? Okay. Uh, uh, what well, would the, uh, great, great questions. First of all, let us make it clear that that the Eucharistic species following the consecration, obviously, should never be frozen. Let's say that up front. Uh, they should be consumed, and then the sacred body can be uh, the precious body of our Lord can be reserved for the sick and for the homebound in the tabernacle throughout the week, but never frozen either species. So the Church simply teaches that uh, on such questions that the sacred species subsists. Uh, precisely as long as uh, there's no breakdown of the sacred species themselves, okay? So uh, the Church holds that that for the average human person, typical human person, we we say that it it subsists within the human person after reception for about 15 to 20 minutes, usually no more than 20 minutes because of the biological processes and the natural breakdown, okay? So with, with frozen elements of the sacred species, uh, we could presume, because of the frozen state, that it would last a little bit longer, but even after a certain time, because of so-called freezer burn and whatnot, we could presume that it would, it would also continue at some point to uh, uh, break down and no longer be present. Now, I'm not a scientist in this regard about uh, the effects of freezing and how, long's, how long things stand. But for example, if, if you keep certain foods in your freezer over a long period of time and they receive freezer burn, they're no longer good. Their, their natural elements are gone. They got to be fr- uh, thrown out. In fact, even things like frozen vegetables will have due dates on them to be consumed, presuming even though they're going to be frozen, you're buying them precisely to freeze them uh, and maybe not cook immediately, and yet there's still a, a use-by date on them, right? Uh, meaning that after a certain date, they're no longer good because the natural goodness, the natural elements of the good that's there in the vegetables uh, has ceased to be uh, consumed, able to be consumed. They're just not there, the natural elements. We could presume the same thing about the Holy Eucharist after a certain point of freezing. So um, that's what I would. That's how I would answer that question without being a scientist. But but there should be no case ever where the Eucharistic species are frozen, um, and uh, and and we want to hold to the Church's teaching, the general teaching that um, after the elements naturally break down, even though the elements or characteristics of bread and wine remain, uh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ subsists in the in the sacred species. But yet there's still a natural breakdown after consumption, consuming the sacred. species. Species, and we hold that to be around 15 to 20 minutes as an average, uh, given all the variety of makeups of, of human persons, given their size, stature, height, etc. So great question. Thank you so much. 
Uh, next up is Karen, a first-time caller in Fort Collins, Colorado, watching us on Facebook Live today. Karen, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, thank you. I have a question about the Fathers of the Church. We are doing a Bible study at our local parish, and we've been studying the Church Fathers. My understanding is there were 87 Church Fathers over the first eight centuries. After that, I think the last one might have been St. John Damascene, but after that, were they called something different, or were there just no more Church Fathers? Well, when we talk about the patristic age from the Latin word pater, which means father, we're talking only about the first eight centuries. Why? Because of, of the, um, close, the close proximity of those men of the early church with the apostolic age itself, okay, especially the earliest of those eight centuries, the first through the third especially. Um, for example, Polycarp was a disciple of John um, the Evangelist, for example. Uh, when we say Father of the Church, the so-called Fathers of the Church, we are talking about the, the saintly writers of the early centuries, as, as you intimate, whom the Church recognizes as her special witnesses uh, to the faith, especially in regards to their antiquity, which answers the question, why only up to eight centuries? Their orthodoxy, their personal sanctity and approval by the church, um, these are, would be the main reasons, I would say, uh, four main prerogatives, we would say, even, um, as, as to what qualifies them or classifies them as a father of the church. Uh, the church fathers are commonly divided into the, the Greek and Latin fathers, and it is now generally held that the last of the Western fathers, that is the Latin fathers, close with Isidore of Seville. Uh, who died in 636, right around there, and the last of the Eastern Fathers, the Greek Fathers, that is, would be St. John Damascene, as you just intimated yourself, who died around the year uh, 749, and the 8th century. So the last of the, of the uh, Western Fathers is a little earlier, 6th century, than the last of the Eastern Fathers, 8th century. But it's primarily those four pillars or those four uh, categories that we would say uh, holds them in such esteem, their antiquity, their orthodoxy, their sanctity, and their approval uh, by the Church uh, for what they wrote. Uh, we also say that they hold a, a privileged witness to sacred tradition, again, why we want to uh, especially look at the earliest of the centuries. Thus, they are privileged witnesses, the Church teaches, to the very tradition, both written and oral, which deciphers and establishes uh, the elements of the sacred tradition found in the life of the Church established by Jesus Christ. Uh, the Fathers are closer to the very sources of sacred scripture and tradition themselves and their purity, namely the apostles and the sacred inspired authors of sacred scripture. And so we would hold then that the Fathers are, are more closely linked to the very origins, quote-unquote, of Christianity itself, and in fact, the, the fathers of the first century especially can even be considered the very authors of the tradition that they pass on, uh, different from the authors of sacred scripture, obviously. Uh, the fathers set the entire canon of the sacred books of sacred scripture at the Council of, of Carthage in 397, largely through the efforts of St. Ambrose and St. Augustine, and remember, Ambrose was Augustine's confessor. And so the, the canon of scripture passed at the Council of Carthage in 397 um, comes from that particular um, uh, gathering of church fathers and, and bishops of the church. Uh, the fathers also responded to the earliest church heresies, which gave rise to theological studies in their purity. 
that's another reason why we stop with around the eighth century with with the east and the the seventh century with the the or sixth century with the Western fathers, because of the great heresies that were uh, uh, prominent in the early churches and in the in the early church and the early centuries that the church had to respond to, and it was the fathers of these early centuries that responded to those heresies, which gave rise to the theological studies in their purity to counteract those heresies. We would say uh, the fathers also formulated the sacred liturgy that we know today, right? And the fathers composed the basic professions of faith found in the Nicene and Athanasian creeds uh, from 325 AD and latter 4th century, respectively. So that the creed, the Nicene creed that we celebrate every Sunday at Mass, uh, comes to us from the efforts of the earliest of the Church Fathers. They also define the sacred deposit of faith, that is to say that all that sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium sets forth as being divinely revealed as necessary for belief to put ourselves on the road to salvation, to work out our salvation, as St. Paul teaches in Philippians 2.12. Um, we can know from that sacred deposit of faith. Um, and so the fathers, we can also say then, laid the very foundations for the ecclesiastical and canonical discipline, that is canon law. And it doesn't even really stop there, right? Uh, also included here would be the governing regulations of monastic life, uh, what, what, how we know monastic life should be properly lived, for example, and, and today this extends even to the governing of associations of lay faithful, like Third Order Dominicans or Third Order Franciscans or Carmelites. And we can say, too, that the fathers, then kind of summing it up, are the very guarantors of the authentic living tradition of the Catholic, that is, universal faith, which grants them an, an authority never, ever to be diminished. And I think that's important, too. So I give you great kudos there for studying the fathers there at your parish level with, with a group. I think that's fantastic. Um, you know, the witness of the fathers, since my springboard topic was on the Second Vatican Council and, and briefly on the life of John the Twenty-Third, and then giving the 16 documents of, of, of the Second Vatican Council, we can say that the witness of the fathers was particularly employed and even given renewed impetus during the Second Vatican Council, again, which ran from 62 to 65, which sought to do what? It sought to authentically renew the Church, right? Uh, so the fathers themselves actually give a timeless witness, a timeless witness to the tradition, uh, to the Church's entire life, uh, which can never be outdated, we could say, right? And so that's important, too. Uh, from the Glossary of Terms of the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, we read this, the fathers of the Church are the Church teachers and writers of the early centuries whose teachings are a witness to the living tradition of the Church. So uh, there's just a lot there with the lives of the fathers. Uh, there's a great book put out by Tan Books and Publishers, and I know that EWTN Religious Catalog carries it. It's, it's called the, the Doctors of the Church, and uh, it's, it serves as a great reader of their life, each one's life. Um, and, and also there's a similar book called the, the Doctors of the Church, where the 36 doctors, many of whom are also fathers of the Church, um, are, are highlighted as well. So there's some dovetailing there be, between all the, the list of the 87 Eastern and Western Fathers and the 36 doctors of the Church. And of course, the list of the 36 doctors extends to more modern times, like uh, St. Uh, Catherine of Siena, 16th century, uh, or uh, excuse me, yes, yeah, 16th century, and also um, Teresa of Avila, uh, actually, Catherine of Siena, excuse me, 13th century, Teresa of Avila, 16th century, and even St. Therese. So there's three great 
uh, female doctors of the church there, uh, with Therese being only only in the nineteenth century. So uh, the the list of the thirty six doctors extends more into modern times. How how many people might I ask are are involved with this group studying on the church fathers? I think this is a great witness call that hopefully other parishes could do the same thing. How many are in your group? Well, um, when everyone's there, a twelve to fourteen, it's a small faith formation group, and it's, uh, actually our study covers the first five hundred years of history. Great. Just- you know, if I if I could recommend when you all are done with this over the period of maybe a year or however long your your plan is for the course on the Church Fathers, um, that you uh, also maybe think about a course on the thirty six doctors of the Church, uh, which would take you into more modern times as well as, as for example, with the three female doctors that I just mentioned. And I think um, uh, Saint uh, there's a fourth female doctor of the Church. I, I her name's escaping me right now. I think it's uh, oh. Uh, Uh, It starts with an M, and I can't think of it right now, but maybe when we come back from our break, I'll have it. Uh, We'll talk to Jack in the Republic of Texas right after this little short timeout, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, Father Wade spent the last weekend in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and we've got a great affiliate in the state of Idaho, and we'd like to welcome a new member to not only the EWTN family, but to the Salt and Light Radio family, as they've just launched their newest station, KGVI-FM 89.5 in Grangeville, Idaho, serving the Camas Prairie. Uh, congratulations and welcome to our friends uh, from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Uh, again, uh, those of you listening to us in the Camas Valley on 89.5 KGVI Salt and Light Radio, welcome to the EWTN family. And Jack, uh, I'd, yes, Jack if ahead. I may, I'd like to give it a shout out to Bernadette Boguski there at The Rock, uh, AM 1260 therock.com is where they can be found there in Cleveland. Uh, I will be interviewed tomorrow morning on The Rock by uh, Debbie Giorgiani, who we know from Take Two with Jerry and Debbie, and also their chaplain there at The Rock, Father Doug Brown. The two of them will interview me on my book, The Four Last Things, as we prepare for Advent uh, and also do their drive, so uh, their fundraising drive. So if you have a a smart speaker, uh, ask it to go tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock Eastern, 8 o'clock Central to AM 1260 The Rock, and to listen to the interview with myself and Debbie and Father Brown, Father Doug Brown, on the four last things. Father Doug Brown is a fabulous priest, so pay attention, Father Wade, you might learn something. I will. I certainly will. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always ready to learn from my brother priest. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. As advertised, we head to the Republic of Texas. Jack is listening on Armor of God Radio. Jack, you're on with Father Wade. Oh, thank you for receiving my call, Father Manesis. Uh I just had a question about... Uh, celibacy, and I heard that it was sort of formally instituted in the 12th century, and I thought, well, how can the nation of Israel, which will only truly uh, progress into the true church, which means our church, so, but they can't, because the priests can't get married, can't have children, and that's absolutely essential to the nation of Israel. 
And then another thing is uh, knowing a little bit, as we all know, of European history. Could it be that in those days they were a little prejudiced? If they see a bunch of Jewish men say, hey, I want to become a priest, uh, I'm going to bring my Jewish wife and have our Jewish children, but we're going to convert and become Catholic, as St. Vincent Farrar, he converted many Jewish people. That's what I read. And uh, so, but then somebody prejudiced could say, now we're going to make sure this is celibate. That way you Jews can't progress into uh, our church. Yeah. I mean, that's cynical. Sure. It seems like your question, Jack, is is directed specifically at uh, those of the Jewish faith, which I, I'm no scholar in. I, I can't answer on their behalf, but I can tell you what the Catholic Church teaches. So let me back up a little bit by telling you where the Fathers of Mercy are located here in Auburn, Kentucky, which we are on 50 acres here at our Father House of what used to be a 6,000-acre Shaker plantation. The Shakers were a movement founded by Anne Lee, who believed that she was the female persona of Jesus Christ incarnate at the time of his second coming. The Shakers uh, did not believe in marriage at all, and they were celibate. The Catholic Church believes in celibacy, whether for her priests, especially in the Latin rite, uh, and or for individuals called to celibacy, like those called to consecrated religious life in, in convents or in monasteries, but she also believes in marriage. So like many points of, of doctrine within the Catholic Church, it's not an either-or, which is kind of how your, your questions, which are, are good and sincere, are, are being phrased. It's like an either-or, but in the Catholic faith, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And we see the rich, rich history of, for example, the monastic heritage in the life of the Church, right? Beginning with St. Anthony in the desert. And the Catholic Church has, in my opinion, the most comprehensive defined doctrine on the sanctity of marriage and family life, which stems, of course, from one of the two sacraments of vocation, which is matrimony and holy orders. So uh, even there we see that in the division of, of how the seven sacraments are divided up, the three sacraments of initiation or baptism, confirmation, and holy Eucharist, the two sacraments of healing, showing forth the reality of the body-soul compositeness of the human person, uh, are uh, the sacraments of confession and the anointing of the sick for body and soul, and the two sacraments of vocation, also known as the two sacraments of union, which are at the service of the populaces throughout the entire world, are holy orders and matrimony. And so even in, in those two sacraments of vocation, those two sacraments of union, which are at the service uh, to the populaces of the entire world, we see the both and of both celibacy and matrimony. So uh, both are important. It's, it's not a, a matter of either or. It, it's, it would be a both and from the Catholic teaching and, and uh, doctrinal point of view. Great questions, Jack. Thank you so much for your call today from Texas. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833 833- 2883986 Michael watching us on YouTube writes in My favorite doctor of the church is St Hildegard of Bingen which by the way does not start with an M Yes that who, is right 
I stand, I stand graciously corrected on that. On the pu- in the public forum, Jack, I stand, I stand fraternally, fraternally corrected on that. So thank you. And Hildegard was a composer as well, and he said, "I got to know her first through her mer- musical pieces, which is interesting, beautiful." And there's a book that I discovered just now on break, put out by our Sunday visitor, OSV Press, our Sunday visitor, uh, not available from EWTNRC.com, but available right through OSV. It's titled, Women of Hope, the Doctors of the Church, regarding those four female doctors of the Church. Again, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of of Jesus, also known as St. Teresa of Avila, and St. Therese of Lisieux, and also St. Hildegard of Bangen. And so uh, there's a book just on those four female doctors of the Church. So our Sunday Visitor Press, uh, maybe there's a a, a women's group or even a men's group uh, at a parish that wants to take on a a four- or five-week course on the female doctors of the Church. There you have it right there. It looks like a good book. It's by Terry Polakovic, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's P as in Paul, O-L-A-K-O-V as in Victor, I-C. Again, Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, Polakovic, P-O-L-A-K-O-V-I-C, from our Sunday Visitor Press, Women of Hope, Doctors of the Church. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And you know, when we talk about the Fathers of the Church, uh, Father Wade, you know, not only have we obviously benefited from their teaching and their writings over the years, but an extension of that, when you look at the great holy um, scripture and theology scholars of our own present day, many of them were at one time not Catholic and actually led to the Church by the writings of the Fathers. So we can just tack on what we've gained from all of them right on to everything we've gained from the, the original Fathers themselves. Right, Correct, right on up to modern times. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn comes to mind. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed uh, to have him as an endorser of my latest book, Catholic Essentials, and he has said publicly, you know, when we were uh, studying in seminary, we, in Protestant seminary prior to his conversion, we, we basically looked over the writings of the Fathers of the Church. He says we looked a little bit of a, at St. Augustine's uh, confessions, uh, and maybe a peppering of a few others on different morality issues. But for example, regarding the Eucharistic doctrine, it was, for the most part, just passed over. And so uh, when, when Dr. Hahn uh, realized, began to realize what the fathers wrote about the doctrine of the real presence, the doctrine of transubstantiation and the Eucharist, and that's just one one major doctrine of the Church that the, that the Fathers themselves wrote extensively on, um, he could see the, the beautiful cohesion there and all that the, the doctors offered. And so we see the, the fruits of Dr. Hahn's uh, conversion to Catholicism stemming from the great writings of the Fathers. You know, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Jack, number 78, uh, it states that the, the Church's ancient teaching refers to the sacred tradition as a living transmission, quote-unquote, and I think this is really, even in modern times, uh, with such scholars as, as Dr. Scott Hahn, we, we can say that we see this lived out, right? This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition, it says, and this is talking about the, the Big T tradition now in the Catechism, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the Church and her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation— Every generation, 
all that she herself is and all that she herself believes. The sayings of the Holy Fathers are a witness to this life-giving presence of this tradition, showing how, it riches, how its riches are poured out in the practice and life of the Church in her belief and her prayer, even until modern times. Again, it transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she herself believes. And we see this even with the lives of our modern scholars, as you state. Next up is CC in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. CC, you're on with Father Wade Menezes. Yes, Father, good to talk to you. Um, yes, a, a few months ago, I bought a, a large print Bible because of my vegetarian uh, vision, and uh, a New American Bible. And uh, I noticed later uh, one of the collaborators, a bishop uh, ad hoc committee, was the first one was uh, Most Reverend Theodore McCarrick, and I was disturbed by that, and I thought, well, there's probably nothing to do. Someone told me to burn it, but I thought, no, I, I don't. that doesn't seem right. Well, don't, don't confuse the, the moral failings of the individual with his biblical scholarship—with his scholarship, in this case, biblical scholarship, which was ultimately approved by the authority of the Church— which is ab above McCarrick himself, right? I mean, just because uh, Pope Alexander VI lived a notorious personal life, uh, concubines, children out of wedlock, etc., are you going to throw out the entire papacy and no longer follow the magisterial teachings of the Church in regards to the, the papal infallibility, for example? You're not going to do that. So don't, don't confuse the scholarship of the individual, in this case, biblical scholarship, with the moral failings of the individual. That would be wrong to do, and that would be, in essence, putting yourself supra-ecclesia above the Church, calling the shots, and, and, and that would not be proper. Remember, we have a goal here of being cum-ecclesia, with the Church. We don't want to be supra-ecclesia, above the Church, nor sub-ecclesia, under the Church, in a self-loathing kind of way. We don't want to be that either. Uh, so all, all things in a balance. Virtue is always found in the via media, so don't confuse... Uh, the, the, the scholarship of that version of the Bible, which is fully approved by the Church, with the moral aliens of individuals that may be found, found uh, uh, as scholars who contributed to that, that particular translation. Okay, so, so good call, good, good witness uh, question, because it, it allows us to kind of iron these things out and find balance in the virtuous mean. Thank you so much, Cece, for calling your call today from Oklahoma City. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ignacio is no longer with us. So... <laughs> We, well, we can try. I think Ignacio may be on the phone. Um, Ignacio, are you with us? I am here. Yes, go right ahead with your question for Father Wade. Hello, Father Wade. Hello, how are you today? Yeah, thank I, you for your call. I, I, I well, Thank you, and I just wanted to thank you also for the beautiful retreat in Quarter Lane. I was there this last weekend. Oh, fantastic. Thank of, you. Uh, Anyway, it's kind of uh, it's one of those places where I remember that uh, where Jesus went up to the mountain, transfiguration, and one of the apostles said, "Let's build a house and let's uh, stay here." Right? Right there, <laughs> you have it. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. But my question is, Father, um, uh, on the uh, on, our, on the creed, it says that it says that the resurrection of the body and the world come again. So, uh, and you know, I, I kind of. Uh, uh, confusing that part because once we died, we're supposed to either go to heaven, purgatory, or hell. 
But who is going to be the resurrection? Who, who is the death? Who are the death? Okay, the resurrection of the dead will take place at the end of time. Will it will coincide with the second coming of Christ when all will rise from the dead? Uh, the just and the saved will rise, uh, and their bodies and souls will be reunited to enter into heaven for all eternity. And the rising of the dead, who are reprobated by their own doing, the damned, uh, their bodies and souls will also be rejoined uh, for the eternity in hell. Uh, purgatory will cease at the second coming of Christ. There's no no more a need for purgatory, and up until until that time, the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven, uh, but because they died with some uh, purgation still needed for temporal punishment at the time of their earthly death, um, they are in purgatory until that purgation is completed for any temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sins. This is why it's important to pray while still living on earth that you can atone for any and all temporal punishment while still living on earth, so that when you do die, you can receive the greatest of all graces of entering heaven immediately upon your death, which is really God's plan A for us, as revealed in sacred scripture, of course. Um, his plan B for us, if you want to call it that, would be to go to purgatory because again, at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. That said, who wants to go there? I don't want to go there. I pray in my morning offering, which you can find at fathersofmercy.com, Ignacio, uh, that uh, I pray for the greatest of all graces to be able to, uh, to enter heaven immediately upon my death, thereby atoning for temporal punishment now while still living. Remember, there's two places that temporal punishment can be had either on earth while still living, so we embrace suffering. I've talked about my six salvific aspects of suffering, the six saving aspects of suffering, and uniting any and all suffering you might have with the cross of Jesus Christ. You can also find that at fathersofmercy.com as one of my uh, blogs at my blog site on the, on the community website at fathersofmercy.com, the six salvific aspects of suffering. And we unite that suffering with the cross of Christ. I talked about that at the men's retreat in Coeur d'Alene this last weekend, for example, the importance of suffering. Touched upon that just a little bit in my talk on the sacraments to the men. Um, or it can be atoned for in purgatory, okay? But if they are in purgatory, they are assured heaven. But at the end of time, the resurrection of the dead will be everybody, the, the reprobated by their own doing and the saved, and their bodies and souls will be reunited. Up until the second coming of Christ, the body and soul remain separated. So thank you so much for coming to the retreat this last weekend. It was a great group of guys, 175 of us, and just a fantastic um, uh, uh, retreat center as well. Get this, uh, Jack. Uh, the name of the retreat center in Coeur d'Alene uh, was named Luther Haven. So you had a bunch of Catholic guys gathering at Luther Haven, <laughs> just a fantastic <laughs> retreat center uh, that was founded back in the 1940s. So a uh, great place to have a retreat, and we thank the staff there uh, for, for treating us so well. Great meals and great accommodations and everything. So thank you, thank you, Ignacio, for your call today. We appreciate it. We'll head back to the state of Oklahoma. You know, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was born in the Oklahoma Territory. Oh, wonderful. Before it was a state. Uh, Brandon is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Brandon, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. This is Brandon. Uh, I had a, a couple of questions. The first question is, uh, in the book of John, uh, Jesus talks about how uh, uh, the ancestors uh, ate manna in the desert or in the wilderness, and they they perished. And he he uh, introduced the Eucharist about you know he's the bread of life. So my question, their first question is, 
in the Our Father prayer where it talks about give us this day our daily bread, is he is he referring to the Eucharist or ah, manna from heaven either? Great question. Uh, and we look to St. Cyprian, bishop and martyr, from his treatise on the Lord's Prayer. St. Cyprian died in 258 AD. Uh, and this is a great dovetailing question that you have, because it ties in beautifully with what we've said about the Church Fathers so far on Open Line Tuesday during this live hour. St. Cyprian, again, he, he lived roughly from 200 to 258, bishop and martyr for the Church. He's, from his treatise on the Lord's Prayer, that's the name of the document, treatise on the Lord's Prayer, he says this, as the Lord's Prayer continues, because he breaks down all the lines of it from the Gospels, right? He says, as the Lord's Prayer continues, we ask, quote, "...give us this day our daily bread." We can understand this petition in a spiritual and in a literal sense. For in the divine plan, both senses will help us toward our salvation. Now we who live in Christ and receive his Eucharist, the food of salvation... Ask for this bread to be given to us every day for nourishment. And indeed, we have the beauty of going to daily Mass, if we can fit it into our schedule. I love this quote from St. Cyprian because it also um, gives us the reality of the Church's teaching on the literal and spiritual senses of Scripture, which you can find in Numbers 115 and 116 at the beginning of the Universal Catechism. There's really four senses of Scripture found under two parent categories. What are the two parent categories? The literal and the spiritual, which is something that St. Cyprian just annotates in, in, that, in that quote that I just read you on, on the Lord's uh, prayer, giving us our daily bread. Uh, there's a literal sense and a spiritual sense, right? But here's the thing. The spiritual is broken down into three further categories, the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical, where the literal means just that, literal. You take the words at face value, right? So there's the literal sense, which is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture themselves and discovered by its exegesis, the spiritual sense, which thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. So, for example, the splitting of the Red Sea with Moses leading the Israelites out of their Egyptian slavery can be seen as a sign of baptism. Uh, also, the allegorical sense, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Uh, and, and there's another example right there with, with the Red Sea. We can also see it as an allegory. And then uh, the moral sense, uh, we, the Catechism says the events re reported in Scripture ought to lead us to act justly in a moral way. They guide us morally. And anagogical, from the Greek anagogy, which means leading, it leads us, right? Uh, we can view realities and events in Scripture in terms of their eternal significance, right? Leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church is seen as a sign of the new heavenly Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. The church here and now, which we know by her four marks, is seen in an, in an anagogy kind of way, anagogical sense, a leading sense, uh, of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem we talk about and read about in the book of the Apocalypse, uh, the, the last book of the Bible. So this is a, a beautiful way of seeing Scripture in its four senses, the literal, the, the uh, moral, allegorical, and anagogical, the latter three, moral, allegorical, and anagogical, being in, under the second parent category of the spiritual sense. And we see this with St. Cyprian's quote, where he talks about 
the literal and the spiritual? Great question. Thank you so much. We appreciate it, Brandon. Next stop is the great state of Louisiana. Mary is in Louisiana listening on Catholic Community Radio. Mary, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. I have two questions. Sure. One is, I read in our weekly Claritin, it's a uh, Catholic uh, weekly newsletter, uh-huh. that November is all Black Saints Month. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. I'm not sure if that's something that the USCCB has uh, has put out there as a special recognition, given the times in which we live in. Um, I, I don't. I can't answer to that. I don't. I've never heard of a Black Saints Month, but it doesn't mean that the Church can't ask for one. It might also have been put forward only by your own bishop. Uh, you know, given that it, that you're from Louisiana, and and there are a lot of Black Catholics in Louisiana that practice the faith. A lot of Black Christians that are not Catholic, uh, maybe as a way of ecumen, uh, ecumenism, uh, reaching out to our African American brothers and sisters. Uh, so I can't answer why we why you read that in the Clarion in your diocesan newspaper about Black Saints Month, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, that said, I think it is important. Uh, to remember what the New Testament says about that in Jesus Christ, uh, there is you know, the litany is given by Saint Paul, I believe it is. Uh, you know, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no slave, there's no freedman. Freeman, we're all one in Jesus Christ. Now, you take the spiritual sense of that, and you look at humanity in 2022. We're all called to the fullness of truth in Christ Jesus, right? And I think that's important. Uh, So you make a good point in questioning why should we need that? So I think there's arguments for both. You know, there seems to be a dichotomy today in the modern-day culture uh, regarding these types of things, and I think it's important for Christians to reach out and say, hey, we are all one in Jesus Christ, and I think that's important. And I think you're right in that you asked that question. Um, So uh, good good question in that regards, and and a good witness question in regards to modern times and the tensions that are out there. Um, I'm looking up that passage right now, uh, all one in Christ, and I'll have it for you here in a second. Galatians 3:28 there is neither there is neither Jew <clears throat> excuse me there is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and i think your question is 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 leading towards that beautiful reality and that's a good thing i admire you for that but why why it was put out there in the diocesan newspaper i think maybe to appeal to or appease to um, which isn't a bad thing uh, some of the tensions that are out there today does that kind of help you out so my second question was sure. at our wake mm-hmm. and um is do you get an indulgence now that the funeral homes have the funeral and the and the church where you they have their own churches and the funeral homes now? Yeah, so uh, is there any indulgences that are go along with a funeral or a wake if it's done at a funeral home instead of a church? No, none that I'm aware of, none that I'm aware of, but it is a pious practice to pray for the dead, so that's important. That, that would be, because we're praying for the deceased, and we want to seek the indulgence for the deceased. Uh, Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, calls screener 
um, Jeff Burson, and I think Jeff Burson was handling our social media efforts as well today. Uh, on behalf of all of them, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless. God bless.